In the last few weeks, we have been looking at uh, this incredible opening to the book of Philippians. In verses 3 through 8, the last two weeks, we've seen the amazing way in which Paul truly loves the Christians in Philippi. In fact, let's read those verses again uh, together. Verses 3 through 8, where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So in that little section there, in verse 4, we're told that, that Paul is remembering the Philippian believers, and he is remembering them with joy in every prayer of his. And in verse 8, he talks about how much he yearns for them. And now in these verses in 9 through 11 that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to see the content of those prayers, what they look like. We're going to see how someone who has this kind of love and affection for the church prays for those whom he loves. So we see this in verses 9 through 11 where Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we have seen over the last few weeks just how we are to love all who are in the church and where this type of love comes from. And today we're going to discover how we should be praying for everyone whom God has placed in the same church as us. If you're, if you're like me, then, and granted, I was probably in the, in, the, in the text a little more than you, but if you're like me, the last couple of weeks have been very challenging. Um, this, this passage has been revealing to me how I need to view all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ at all times, where I'm, where I'm falling short and the love that I should have for all of you. And once you start to understand these things, once they really start to take, to take root in you, then, then of course it is going to lead to the type of prayer that, we just, that we've just seen in verses 9 through 11. What we see here in these verses is, is truly a model for how we should always be praying for each other. Of course, it is, it's great to pray for each other whenever we have re- requests about various physical needs, and we should absolutely tell each other about these, and we should solicit each other's uh, prayers in regards to these types of things. But this, what we see in these verses, is an outline for how we should be constantly praying for one another. The types of prayers that we, that we pray no matter what circumstances we know that someone might be in. So the, these are the things that we should be longing to see in one another all the time, knowing that these are the things that the person that we're praying for needs the most. 
We never, in in any of Paul's recorded prayers, we never see him uh, praying for physical needs, ever. And that's not to say that he never prayed for those types of things. I'm, I'm sure he prayed for Epaphroditus and his illness. But we can clearly see that he never saw those types of prayers as prayers that would be instructive on how Christians should be praying. And so he doesn't include those in his letters. He includes this prayer. John MacArthur has said that there is no truer indicator of a Christian's level of spiritual maturity than his prayer life. And that makes makes perfect sense because the the more selfish and immature a a person is, then the less frequently they're going to pray. And the majority of their prayers, um, when they do pray, are, are usually when things aren't going well or there's some sort of personal, physical trial and then they start praying. Once someone, though, begins to grow a little more, they start to recognize the much greater importance of growing in Christ-likeness. And they start, start to pray more with this aim, that aim in mind. And as they continue to grow in Christ-likeness, they grow in their love for others. And they begin to spend the majority of their time in prayer for others. And because they recognize that their greatest need is to be made more holy, they pray less about the physical trials of others and more and more about their spiritual growth, even for those who are in trials. And the more they grow in the right understanding of who God is, the more time they will spend in prayer as they understand that there is nothing that they can do, nothing that they can do to help themselves or anyone else grow in godliness if God isn't at work in that person's life to bring about the change. So that drives you to prayer. And if that's true, then of course, Again, we're going to be driven to pray to our omnipotent Father to work these things into the lives of those who we truly love. The type of concern and care that often drives us to our knees in prayer when we discover that someone we dearly love has just been surprised with some sort of terrible tragedy. It's that same desperation that's going to drive us to our knees in all of our remembrance of each, each one of our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know how desperately they need these things that Paul is praying for in this passage, whether they know it or not. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to see the prayer that love for the church demands. We're going to see the prayer that a a true love, a right love for the church demands of us. If we really love the church, the way that we have seen in the last few weeks, the the, the way that we should love the church, the way that we need to be loving each other, then this is the way that we must be praying for each other. And that's what you see in your outline this morning. If you love the church... If you really love each person in here, then you will, then you will pray a prayer like this with these points. Number one, abounding in love, that they will be abounding in love. Number two, that they will be approving of excellence. Number three, that they would be abundant in fruit. So point number one, abounding in love. Look at verse nine again. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge 
and all discernment. You can see that, that Paul's prayer for them is, to be, uh, is, is that they'd be abounding in love. And that's actually the main part of this whole prayer. Everything else flows out of that, of that request. Uh, it comes from that. The, the rest of what he prays for flows out of their abounding more and more in love. And that, that makes sense because, as we know from the rest of the Bible, especially 1 John, that love is to be the defining characteristic of those who belong to God. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, 16 and 17 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world." So Paul wants this same thing for these people. He wants them to be defined by their love for each other. He isn't just saying that he wants, he wants it to grow, like to grow a little, but that it would keep growing in them. Now that's what we see in that phrase, more and more. It says that it would be abounding more and more. We know that Paul already thinks highly of the Philippians, Right? We've seen that already. Uh, and that he, he already sees love as a defining characteristic in them. I mean, he's so thankful for them and, and the love that they've shown to himself and to Epaphroditus and Timothy. He sees love in them already. And we talked about this, how, how this is one of Paul's only letters where he doesn't uh, feel like it's necessary to remind them that he's an apostle, that he has to demonstrate his authority to them so that they'll listen to him. Paul holds them in such high regard that he doesn't feel the need to remind them of this. Remember, this is Paul's letter of joy. This is, a, this is a, this, such a positive letter. But here he tells them, implicitly, albeit, that, that they still need to be growing in their love. They, they haven't arrived. And it's not just that they need to grow a little. If, if he were here to say, uh, if he were to hear say that, that he prays that their love would abound more, just, and just said more once, that, that would be sufficient to show them that they still have some growth that they need to do. They haven't arrived yet. And it, and it could maybe even be taken by them that, they, that maybe they have a little more growth until they get to the place where they need to be when it comes to love. But by saying more and more, the idea is that it is something that they should always be growing in. They're always going to be growing in it. There's no reason to think that these verses that we looked at in 1 John that I just read to you, that they don't already characterize the Philippian Christians. But Paul is saying that they can never be satisfied where they are when it comes to love. We can't just look at verses like this and then think we can get to a point one day where we can check off the box and say, all right, I'm there. I'm abounding in love. What's, what's the next Christian thing I need to work on now? We, we can't do that. And when we are praying for each other, we need to keep praying that each one, each one will abound more and more in love. Because we have in our prayers, we have a tendency to, to only pray a prayer like this for someone if we can clearly see a deficiency in love. 
in them. And that's usually because we have a standard of some unloving person in our mind that we know they're in our mind and we compare people to that standard. That's what an unloving person looks like. That's the person who needs prayer to grow in love. And there are a lot of people, praise God, in this church who I would have no problem saying that person is characterized by love. Their love is so evident for the church in their life, and in all of their interactions. But again, none of us ever reach a point where we stop needing to have this prayed for us. Even the person who is marked by the most Christ-like love you have ever seen, even that person desperately needs us to pray that their love would abound more and more. As you go through that, this new directory we're making and, and you're praying for everyone, if you don't know that person very well, if you don't know them very well, well, that should be a good sign for you to go to get to know them, but you can also know for a fact that you can and should be praying this prayer for them. They, you can know they need it. They have not arrived yet. The culmination, remember, of Philippians 1.6 has not happened yet. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That hasn't happened yet. They need to keep abounding more and more in love. But it is important as we pray this for each other that we don't have that silly, fraudulent, worldly understanding of love in our minds. When Paul is talking about love here, he doesn't mean it the way that it is thought of by most today. The idea that, that you, you try to do whatever you can to make, to make sure that no one's feelings are ever getting hurt. I mean, grant, we don't go out of our way to hurt people's feelings, but that, that's not what we mean by love. It's not prioritizing their happiness over their good. But how someone feels when you talk to them doesn't actually have anything to do with whether or not you have loved them well. It's not about doing whatever you can to allow everyone to do what makes them happy. Biblical love has its origin in truth. Doing and saying that which is truly best for someone, regardless of how they feel or how you feel. You see this distinction made, made right here when Paul says that he wants their love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. If you're not careful and you're reading really quickly there with the grammar there, you could, you could read this as a list and say that, that Paul is praying that they will have love that abounds more and more and that he also wants them to have knowledge and discernment. But even in our English translations, we can see that that's not what's being said. Even though that is how the majority uh, in Christian culture take it. That's how they think of a verse like this. Right? You've heard that, right? Love. Love is the main thing. That, that's what we're supposed to be all about. Yeah, may, maybe knowledge is important and I should probably figure out what discernment is. But clearly, what God is most concerned with is my love. And, and I don't want to deny that there's truth to the understanding that that's, that is Paul's primary concern here. It's love. 
And, his, and it's his primary concern. Everything, like I, was, like I said, everything else in this pr- prayer flows out of them growing in love. But he's not talking about three different things here. He's saying that the way love abounds more and more is with knowledge and all discernment. Love is not this nebulous feeling or, or, even, this, this, or even an action that exists outside of knowledge and discernment. Most translations uh, actually render the word with there as in, which would probably be more helpful for us uh, to understand this. The, it, um, the, the, the very definition of love and growing in love is dependent on growth in knowledge and discernment. So we're, so we're not tempted to think of with as something that sits next to love instead of connected with it. It might be good for us to think of it in terms of in. Paul is saying that the way in which their love is to abound more and more is in knowledge and discernment. The idea is that the, the growth of those things, knowledge and discernment, is what leads to growth in love. So, stop for just a second and think about how this one verse stands in rebuke of so much of evangelical culture right now. There is no growth in love apart from growth in knowledge and discernment. That doesn't happen. True love for others cannot exist outside of knowledge and discernment. There is no love if there is no knowledge and discernment. Contrary to, the, to that popular phrase, love is blind, it's not true. Love sees clearly because it is informed by true knowledge and then rightly applied through discernment. To, to abound means to, to have an excess of or to overflow. It's the idea that it's just overflowing out of you. Love just keeps coming out of you and it, it doesn't stop. But there is no abounding in love without also abounding in knowledge and discernment. They're connected necessarily. If you're not growing in knowledge and discernment, you're not growing in love no matter what you think. This is so important for a Christian culture that actually seems to be teaching that growing in love means outgrowing knowledge and discernment. Getting past those things. Well, they wouldn't say it. That's primarily the idea that's taught. Knowledge comes um, from a word that, that means true knowledge. Epigenosis, true knowledge, or moral perception and insight. Uh, moral perception is an in, in insight, as some lexicons say. The, the full knowledge that comes through knowing who God is through Christ. And the way we attain this is through a better understanding of God's Word. Knowing better who God is and who we are and what is required of us by studying His Word, will make us more loving. And think about it, it's impossible to be proud or selfish and simultaneously be thinking true things about God. The word that is 
translated as discernment, has to do with recognizing and making right decisions. So, so knowledge is gaining a better understanding of that which is true. And discernment then is rightly living according to that knowledge. And actual love does not grow when you stop caring about these two essential components. And this is exactly what we saw this week in the controversy of the Truth Matters Conference with John MacArthur's response about Beth Moore. If you, for those of you who don't know, Beth Moore is a famous Southern Baptist author and speaker whose books and conferences have gone from, like when I was in high school and college, they were just, you know, not, just not very helpful or useful. Um, but they've gone from that to now dangerous and borderline heretical. Uh, she, she's talked about a hermeneutic that she has of reading the Bible and trying to find herself in it, trying to put herself in it. She's talked about hearing and receiving visions directly from Jesus. If you remember, if you were here, Justin Peters, we watched that video, where, <laughs> that creepy video, where she says she, she heard Jesus telling her to go up to this guy in a wheelchair and start brushing his hair. She, yeah. <laughs> she has aligned herself with, uh, with prosperity gospel preachers. And she's recently uh, had the things that she had uh, that she'd written in the past uh, against homosexuality, namely calling it a sin. She's had those things removed from all further publications of her books. And, and even most recently now, she's become kind of the, the poster person for a new soft complementarianism, soft complementarianism, which is really just egalitarianism with a couple of limits. Egalitarianism, if you don't know, is the teaching that there are no differences in the roles that God has assigned to men and women. It denies the, the clear biblical teaching that those who hold the office of elder and pastor, those who teach the Word of God to the congregation, are to be men. And so this last week in in what was admittedly a poor way of having the discussion of this importance, John MacArthur was asked to play a word association game and give a one or two word response to, to whatever the moderator said. And when the moderator gave the name Beth Moore, Pastor MacArthur responded with the two word phrase, go home. He then proceeded to give the biblical case that, that women are not to be preaching and made some further points on other social justice issues that were being confused in this. And again, the context for the initial comment and the nature of the way the interview was done um, wasn't great and was probably in poor taste and it probably would have been better if there was a different interviewer, if Travis was doing the interview. But within the next 24 hours, Christian leaders from all over the country who are in that social justice camp, were, were everywhere taking aim at him for his hateful, unloving comments. Again, fine, not a fan of the interview, but, but, but telling an unqualified false teacher to go home, is that really unloving? Just, just the words? Are they really? 
Maybe, possibly, it wouldn't have been best if no one had ever confronted her on any of this stuff, if, if he wasn't confident that the biblical reasons for why she needs to stop teaching and writing, get into a good church, sit under good preaching, get her theology correct, and then maybe start teaching and discipling women. Maybe if none of that had happened yet, but she has been confronted on this multiple times, and she just keeps moving further and further to the left. If, as we have seen in this passage, love is not a tone, love is not a tone, right? There are two loving ways I can tell my kid to get out of the street. If there's no cars coming, I can say, son, daughter, get out of the street. If there's a car coming, I can shout it, and it's still a loving tone, right? So it's not a tone, and it isn't about individual feelings, but, can, uh, but it can, in fact, only exist and grow with knowledge and discernment. Love can only exist and grow with those things. If that's true, then is it loving for these evangelical leaders to keep affirming Beth Moore's ministry? Is it loving to their churches to continue to promote her to them because she's such a nice lady? Is it loving to God or to her to not say anything to someone who teaches that which is contrary to Scripture while also ignoring clear biblical teaching in her practice? What is more loving? To tell that person to stop or to encourage them to continue and even build them up in their false teaching? With a biblical, a truly biblical understanding of what love is, how, it, how is it possible that encouraging that or even just not saying anything is more loving than John MacArthur's response? Again, we don't go out of the way to say anything in an unloving or, or a, a, a false tone, but we know that it's not. Love isn't defined by those things. With a biblical understanding of what love is, how is it possible that encouraging that or not saying something would be more loving? And to whom could that be more loving? Is it more loving to the people who sit under her teaching and buy all of her books? Is it more loving to them to not confront her? Is it more loving to Beth Moore to let her continue on in that? Is it more loving to God to allow someone to continue to claim His name and teach falsely about Him? We are to pray for each other that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and in discernment. Love knows what is right and then does it. And granted, this, this does usually mean, it usually means that it will come across as nice and kind to those around you, and it should. But it doesn't always look like that. It always comes down on the side of truth, knowing that this is what is best for everyone involved and most honoring to God. Being nice, being sensitive, being tolerant, all of those things could possibly be a part of loving someone. They could possibly be a part of it, but knowledge and discernment always are. They're essential every time in anything that could be considered love.
And so this is how we are going to be praying when it comes to our prayers for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That their love would abound more and more. That they wouldn't buy into this terrible definition of, of love that we see everywhere, but that they would love like Christ loves with action that is based on true knowledge. And that type of love then leads naturally to our second point, approving of excellence. Approving of excellence, and we see that in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So you you see there, he says, so that, so that, that means So that real love, the kind that grows as knowledge and discernment grow, leads to the ability to approve what is excellent. So so that's like the next level of discernment. It's not just acting on what is good as opposed to that which is evil, but acting upon that which is best, that which is excellent. So the, the point in this is that when someone has has love abounding more and more. They are no longer making a decision between what is morally right and morally wrong. Those, those things come easy to the one who is overflowing with the type of love that comes from increasing knowledge and discernment. These are, these, we're talking here about kind of the ethereal, what's God's will for my life, those type of questions that so many people, again, in the evangelical world are just broken over and they're obsessed with. That's what many of the book titles that I read to you a couple of weeks ago had to do with. Did you notice that? Not only were those books made for people who are completely focusing on themselves, which is why I read them or I gave you that list to show that that's happening, but they're also primarily about figuring out your life. The themes in those books were things like this how to find your purpose. How to discover your dreams, discovering who you really are, how to become more courageous. Who 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 were you who are you meant to be? Not just who you are, but who are you actually meant to be? And and how do you live your purpose? Those are just those those could be subtitles on all of those books we read, stuff like that. Now now just just think about those questions. Those questions that those books are trying to help you answer for yourself. What is going to happen to the one who is abounding in love, in knowledge and discernment when he goes to answer those questions? That person is either going to find those questions very easy to answer or deem them pointless. The one whose mind has been informed by the Word of God and then has determined to live according to it, does not need to read a book to discover his purpose. The Bible is clear. Grow in Christ-likeness. Be an active part of a church. Evangelize. Disciple. The reason people are devouring these books, books like that, even though this is clear in the Bible... The answers to those questions are clear in the Bible is because it goes against that deficient understanding of love that they've embraced and they can't let go of. 
Since this is what love is, these are valid questions. That love that says that everyone gets to be and do whatever makes them happy, and we don't get to encroach on anyone else's pursuit of those things. That's love. Of course the person thinking like that is going to be lost and deluded and have no idea what step to take next. They can't live lives approving of or embracing the excellent when they aren't even taking the first basic step of discerning what's right and wrong. The one abounding in love does not waste time trying to discover their own personal dreams and isn't tempted to waste their life following those dreams because they know that they are a slave to Christ. Their concern is righteous obedience and they have a trust in a good and sovereign God. You don't need to discover the real you because the Bible tells you who you really are. You don't need to waste your time trying to discover who you are meant to be, what you can become, because the Bible tells you that too. You are a slave of Christ, and you get to experience the unbelievable privilege of living your life in His service. A ransomed sinner, now made a friend, an adopted child of God. And, and you live for Him, and it's the only way to live that will bring you true joy, and the only way you'll ever be able to understand and have a real sense of purpose. So you can see that these types of books and the types of songs that are so popular are really only needed and desired by those in American Christian life who have completely sold out to this low, feelings-oriented understanding of love. Those with a deep and rich, truth-based love have no need for those things. I don't think I've ever asked myself since I've been a Christian, what's my purpose? Those books have had, I've never been tempted at all by them. Those who have this understanding of, of love, they, they're not only able to live in a way that distinguishes right from wrong, but also wise from foolish. That's what this most excellent way is that he's talking about. They will know this in themselves, that, that, that that's true in themselves, but even greater, even better, even more to Paul's concern, they will be able to see it in the context of the lives of those who are around them also, their brothers and sisters in Christ. So we pray for this in each other, that God would cause our love to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that we may approve what is excellent we need to be praying for our church in this way. How, how awesome it would be, wouldn't it? How awesome it would be to have a whole church that is able to approve what is excellent, demonstrating with their lives that they recognize what is true and what is worth pursuing. So you can see how that would lead to what, what, it, what it says would, would be the next result and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. Pure and blamelessness, that's not, um, that's not referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ, not here, which is true of believers, 
the imputed righteousness of Christ, the glorious and wonderful truth that, that, that unites us and makes us brothers, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, our pure, spotless righteousness. He is the one who perfectly obeyed the law in our place so that when we place our trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that He, that he took our sins upon Himself and God was pleased to accept this sacrifice and demonstrated it by raising Him from the dead. So he, now He takes our sin, the punishment that we deserve, and He gives to us in exchange that perfect righteousness of Christ. So that God now sees in us the perfectly obedient life in His Son. Those who are in Christ hold a pure and blameless position before God because of His imputed righteousness. That is true. That is a glorious truth. It is the most wonderful message imaginable. But that is not the purity and blamelessness that Paul has in mind here. Pure here is, is not the more common word that is translated as pure uh, in the New Testament. Uh, this word is a word that can also be translated as sincere. And you'll see that in some of your translations. The idea that Paul is trying to communicate isn't one of, of, of earning their way into a pure standing, but, but, but is actually one where the person is above reproach is sincere, of good character, someone who is consistent, not a hypocrite. The word literally means to be tested by the sunlight. To be tested by the sunlight. So the idea is that when they are brought out into the open, they can be seen as genuine. They can be seen as what, that they are what they really proclaim to be. And blameless here is in reference to being one who gives no offense or to not cause someone else to stumble. Not cause someone else to stumble. That seems like the way that Paul is most likely using the word in this context. Because it, it demonstrates his concern for how they love each other. He is concerned with their unity. He's, he's demonstrated this already in several places. He is praying for their love to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that they will approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, be sincere and blameless. This is what He desires for this church to be like. So that they are ready for the day of Christ. Paul has, and you see this throughout his letters, he has this understanding. Uh, we see, yeah, we see it in other places that, that, that he is presenting people to Christ. I'm presenting this church to Christ. Is, is that how we, and, it, and it, that should definitely apply even more to a greater extent for pastors, elders. But, it, but is that how we all, all of us as a church, see our church? We are all doing our part to prepare each other to be presented to Christ one day. Is that, is that how you're praying for one another? That this person, the person next to you, the, the person on the other side that you don't talk to often, they're going to be standing before Christ one day. 
as a fellow member of the church that I'm a part of. We often, we often talk about uh, how we need to be striving to store up treasures in heaven for ourselves. And amen, and we should. Wes just taught a class on that here earlier this morning. But is there something also in you that longs to see everyone in your church family receiving these rewards, storing up treasures in heaven, able to stand sincere and blameless in the day of Christ, to see no one in here to be ashamed or embarrassed in the day of His returning? So, let's pray for each other. Pray for each other in this regard, that the, the love abounding in us, but praying for love to abound in us more and more, that that would lead to lives lived for only that which is excellent, lives of integrity, lived for the Lord and for His church. Lives that are, and this is the last point in your line, outline, lives that are abundant in fruit, abundant and fruit. Look, look in verse 11 how this marvelous prayer of Paul ends. He says, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer for them is that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, and that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The, the, the fruit of righteousness, that's in reference to all of the, the good that God wants to produce in us, that God is producing out of us. So, so the idea is, is once again that the day of Christ is coming and, and, and we want no one, no one in the church to be standing before Christ lacking fruit. And not just lacking fruit, but not being filled with fruit. We're praying for each other at the level of ultimate purpose. And this is why we have no need for those books. Because we have come to a place where we know God through His Word. And as we are able to understand that which is excellent, that which is truly excellent, we can pray it for each other. We can look around at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and we can look around in this room and we can see each other and we can be confident that they are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in. That's, that's Ephesians 2.10. We, we often read that verse and think of it in terms of understanding our own purpose and what Christ wants with our own lives, and we should think of it that way also. Um, but we, we need to shift a little bit and start taking these verses and thinking about verses like this as ground for our prayers for each other also. We pray for each other to be like this. Fruit, of course, as the Bible talks about fruit, is the product of a process. It's something that God is doing in you. It's, it's something that comes from, from you, from out of you, because of what God is doing in you, not because you're really trying hard to produce it yourself. God is doing it in you. 
That's what it says right there. Fruit comes through Jesus Christ, filled with a fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's, and that's what Jesus taught us. In, in John 15, 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this means that connected to this prayer that we are praying from this this passage in Philippians is also the fact that we are praying for each other to abide in Christ, to continually be abiding in Christ. If we are not connected to Him and if we are not drawing from Him, we can do nothing. We will never be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that's actually a reason that Paul gives to Titus for why Christ died. In in Titus 2.13 and 14, at the end of Titus 2.13 and into verse 14, uh, Paul says to Titus, Um, He he talks about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, uh, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, as we have talked about this before, we, we are constantly filled, we are constantly to be filled with thankfulness for one another because we understand that God has made us partakers of, of the same grace. No matter what else we have to thank God for about each other, we, we can always begin with the fact that in His good pleasure, this person has been given the grace of salvation. And God has begun a good work in them that He will bring to completion. But in our prayers for each other, we understand that justification wasn't the in purpose in salvation. It wasn't the in purpose for why Christ came to die. He saved us. He saved each one of us in here who has, who, who has turned from their sin and followed Christ, who God has regenerated. He saved each one of you to be one who is zealous for good works. Is is that how we are praying for one another? That that we would each be zealous for good works? Like, God, make them abide in you. Make them zealous for the good works that you have saved them to do. That they wouldn't be so distracted with all the vain things in life, all of the rubbish. They would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. We're praying like that for each other. There was an article in the Babylon Bee. It's a Christian satire site about, um, so it's fake, about author and pastor John Piper as a guest commentator during the World Series. So if you know who John Piper is, the one who wrote the book, Don't Waste Your Life, Desiring God, it had lines in the article like this. An animated Piper gave insightful commentary on the plays 
and criticized both the players and crowd for, quote, wasting their lives throughout the game. Piper said, there goes another man wasting his life swinging a piece of wood at a ball, he said after an incredible hit was made late in the game. And for some reason, a crowd full of people also wasting their lives are cheering like mad. I just want to remind the audience that none of this will go into eternity, he added as he passionately pleaded with the audience to turn their attention to things that mattered. So at first glance, that's a, that's a funny article, and I'm not saying that it's bad to take in an occasional sporting event, and the article is meant to be satire. But as a Christian with an, with an eternal mindset, I was thinking through that. I was like, how long would I actually be able to watch that game with John Piper commenting like that before I turned it off and went to read my Bible? I would have to at some point, I would think, being filled with an abounding love founded in knowledge and discernment should cause me to live a life where I don't need commentary to approve what is excellent and strive for fruits of righteousness. This is, this is what we are praying for each other, that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that we will approve and live for, for that which is excellent. So that in our day-to-day -day lives, as we abide in Christ, we are discerning the best use of our time and energy, not simply doing whatever we want to as long as it's not direct sin, but being filled with fruit of righteousness, filled with it, not just an apple a day or, or my good deed for the day type of thinking, but every hour, every moment being filled with being filled with fruit of righteousness. As we pray for each other, we need to think of our lives as vessels that are constantly being filled every hour, every day. We don't, and we don't typically pray like that because it makes us reflect on our own lives and so sometimes we, we feel like we're being overly critical. But are we praying that their lives, that each day, all the time, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Is that how we're praying? That is the way we must be praying for one another. Again, not that it's bad to pray for physical needs, but our primary overwhelming concern for one another in prayer needs to sound like Paul here. It needs to sound like him. And as we pray these things for one another, if we pray this model of prayer along with Paul, it will increase our patience with one another as we grow together as a church in sanctification. It will have that effect because just praying this, just praying a prayer like we see Paul pray here, means that you are recognizing that this type of life that we are praying for in each other can only be accomplished by the work of God. We see this in the, in the very fact that Paul announces this as a prayer. In that very first verse, and it is my prayer. The fact that it is a prayer means that he understands that this can only be done by God. Yes, he is going to go through this letter and encourage them to grow in these same ways that he's praying for them, but he ultimately understands it as a work of God. The filling with the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. 
So as we pray for each other with this mindset, and then as we see each other's lives growing in this direction, we will give glory and praise to God, just as Paul does here at the end of this verse. To the glory and praise of God. That is the ultimate reason that we are to pray for each other like this. Not because we really love each other, though we absolutely must really love each other. And we have seen over these last few weeks, hopefully, just just what that love looks like and how that love acts. But the ultimate reason that we are pleading with God to make His people like this is because it magnifies the glory of God because only He can do this. We are praying that God will continue to do that which He has promised in verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So as this work uh, as this work begins to reflect more and more, this work that we see, this work that we're praying for in this church begins to reflect more and more that completed work, we must give glory to God because He is the one who must be doing it. And you will find that the greater your involvement in this work is, the greater you, uh, you, you are used by God in this, in doing this for His people, the more you're invested in it, the more fervently that you are praying to see God do this in an individual or in the church, then the greater your amazement and joy and praise to God will be as you watch it happen before you. It's amazing. Best thing that can happen to you is to see that and witness that. So let us, Grace Church, understand that God is doing a work among each brother and sister in, uh, that we have in here. Each brother and sister in the Lord here. And let's fervently pray this prayer for each other, this prayer that we've seen here. That we would abound more and more in a love that is inseparable from an ever-deepening knowledge and wise discernment so that we may approve what is excellent, embrace what is excellent, and thereby live lives of integrity, making the most of our time, keeping others from stumbling, so that we may be found sincere and blameless for the day of Christ at which time we may also be found filled with the fruit of righteousness that that comes through abiding in Christ and all of it to the glory and praise of God. Father, we thank You for this instruction on how to pray. God, I pray that we would all be faithful, so faithful in our prayers for each other. That we would pray these things and long to see these things taking place in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that we would get the privilege and more and more so of seeing You answer these prayers. Of seeing our brothers and sisters grow in love, abounding more and more in love, and a right and true love, marked by knowledge and discernment, 
seeing them grow in their in their ability to discern and approve what is excellent, live their lives for you. Pray that we would take great joy in this and that we would never cease to thank you, praise you, give glory to you as we see it happen. In Jesus' name.